Good morning, Team Crewland community, and we are happy to bring you a um, probably probably an overdue episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War um, with our resident of Russia subject matter expert, Dr. Yuval Weber. And um, it has been uh, a couple weeks, um, and so there's sort of a lot to catch up on. But as we were just talking about right now, even uh, we had talked yesterday about trying to do this recording um, last night, and time use didn't work out. But uh, it it actually added another bullet point for us to have in our discussion today because there is things are changing on the ground over there on a, on a daily and hourly basis even. So uh, we're just going to go ahead and for first we're going to kind of catch everybody up there in the audience about sort of the highlights, uh, well highlights, lowlights, and uh, developments over the last couple of weeks, and then uh, we're going to look at what this all means here going ahead because there. Are, uh, there are some there 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 are, are decisions to be made ahead, um, uh, and some decision points coming as well that have been probably highlighted earlier by the, the Russian command, especially. And those decision points may now have some different implications because things have not been going their way. So, Yuval, good to see you again. Uh, got you broadcasting from sunny Dallas, which is probably a lot warmer than uh, Northern Virginia right now, which has decided that winter is not in fact over. Um, so we're getting frost warnings on all our phones today. But uh, if you want to go ahead and just kind of catch us up on on what's been going on and what the implications are going to be here in the next few weeks for both sides. Thank you, Ian. And I, I must also say you look resplendent in your formal Friday gear. Um, so basically, what have we gotten up to? And we, we've been, you know, for the audience, the reason I keep looking down is that uh, Ian and I created a list of what has happened in the past two weeks. Uh, so this might take uh, several several moments here to go through. Um, obviously, two weeks ago was the sinking of the Moskva, which was the Black Sea Fleet's uh, flagship cruiser. Um, Ukraine does not have a navy, which is it's a bad sign when you're losing your flagship to a country that doesn't have a navy. And what we uh, ostensibly understand from this is that they use some armed drones in order to distract uh, the ship's radar. And once the ship's radar was looking the other way, which seems cartoon-like, uh, they then hit the actual ship with two um, surface-to-ship missiles, uh, domestically designed and produced, and down went the Moskva, which is also notable because Moskva in Russian is the name of Russia's capital, uh, Moscow. It's in Russian language. So losing your flagship, which has the name of your capital city, to a country that doesn't have a navy, uh, was not a good look. Um, the opening of the second phase of the Donbass uh, offensive, uh, the first phase of the conflict was ostensibly the, the shock and awe campaign that failed. This was the idea of taking Kiev in two days, collecting surrenders for the next couple of weeks, that leading, including, so leading up to uh, regime change, partition, annexation of half of Ukraine, all those dreams did not come true. Um, and so in basically phase 1.5 or phase two, whatever we call it, uh, the Russian uh, political and military uh, leadership came up with the idea that that was actually just a ruse. And the, the real uh, objective of the conflict was to expand the Russian zone of control into Donbass uh, across uh, towards uh, Kherson and the south of uh, Ukraine in order to make the Sea of Azov domestic waters um, and to create the land bridge to Crimea. That was the uh, ostensibly real uh, objective. That and now what they're doing is basically renewing the offensive in order to make that true. Um, what we've seen, and we'll discuss a bit more in just a second, 
is that this is not essentially creating any dramatic victories uh, either. We've seen Russian military strikes on missile strikes on railroad stations where civilians were evacuating in Kramatorsk and the bombing of civilian uh, infrastructure around Odessa. Odessa being the third largest city of Ukraine and obviously the, the pearl on the Black Sea. This would, if Russia were to get uh, Odessa, even though Odessa is very big and very well defended at this point, this would allow uh, Russia to cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea and ostensibly provide a land bridge to Transnistria, uh, which has also experienced a series of terrorist bombings over the last couple of days. Now, we can also get into that, but this looks like a fairly transparent attempt in order to create a second front to one, distract Ukrainian uh, forces, but two, also create the specter of the widening of the war in order to bring in NATO. Uh, because if Russia is going to lose this war, at least they'd like to lose to NATO and not Ukraine. Uh, that could provide um, 20 years of grievance leading up to the next war rather than the fall of Putin directly. We've also had a series of uh, interesting explosions around Russian oil refineries, chemical manufacturers, and other military supporting buildings, um, not just in Belgorod, which is near the Ukrainian border, uh, but across Russia and including in Tver, which is near Moscow, which is hundreds of miles away. Um, so this indicates that Ukrainian, it could be just bad maintenance and infrastructure and that explosions across Russia would just not ordinarily be covered by the news, except for this context. That's totally plausible. Um, or other nefarious explanations. We've also had, um, roughly speaking at this point, six to eight, uh, there's a couple of seemingly every day, of mid-level money managers across Russian banks um, who have been killed along with their families uh, in Russia and other European destinations. This suggests that as the sanctions are starting to bite and the flow of money is getting tighter and tighter, um, people who ostensibly were nodes along the corruption um, let's say pipeline, as it were, uh, are getting cut out of the, getting cut out of the game. Um, it's also pretty grim if people's like families are getting murdered at the same time that corrupt people are getting murdered. Because if foul play starts to get introduced, not clear where this is going. We also have, uh, we'll, we'll explain in further detail, um, ramping up of weapons deliveries from uh, countries all over Europe and the United States. Um, the German parliament has formally approved uh, the delivery uh, in principle of all German heavy weapons uh, to Ukraine. And so we're starting to see not just from countries which are have been on Ukraine's side all the way through, such as Poland, Slovakia, et cetera, giving things all the way up to fixed winged aircraft, so like fighter jets, uh, helicopters, things of that nature. Um, but now the Germans are starting to give their tanks, their infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, and obviously one of the things that we'll get to, and again, once I get to the end of this list, is uh, President Biden's announcement yesterday that he is requesting a $33 billion aid package to Ukraine, of which 16 billion of that would be military aid. This would take Ukraine, if this is approved by Congress, this would take Ukraine's military expenditures in a sense uh, above Israel, Canada, Australia. So it would be perhaps one of the most powerful militaries uh, in Europe for uh, a while. We've also seen multiple European and US visitors to Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities. Um, the Secretary General of the UN uh, went to Kyiv yesterday and for his efforts, uh, a building nearby to him was bombed by the Russians. Uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin were also in Kyiv recently. 
Sweden and Finland are making a joint application to NATO in ostensibly the next couple of days or weeks. Uh, re, uh, so that's, again, great strategic result for the Russians. Um, recent gas shutoffs to Poland and Bulgaria. Um, and this is in line with what is the anticipated to be, as announced by uh, the German uh, foreign minister, that Germany will be off Russian gas uh, ahead of schedule uh, within the next couple of days or weeks. Um, and the French announcing that they are in support of a Russian oil embargo. It seems that we are closer uh, than ever to an oil embargo by European states on uh, oil coming from Russia. Now, part of that is one, all the sh Russian shipping, which, you know, oil is not just goes through pipelines, but it gets put on ships. Uh, those ships are also sanctioned. Um, maritime traffic from Russia sanctioned. Um, this will force uh, basically production to slow down in Russia because they've already hit storage limits across most of their depots. The depots obviously that haven't yet been bombed. Getting that oil to uh, Asia and to China will also take some time. So this will put a significant dent in Russian revenues. Again, we have, uh, we have a lot of things going on, um, but just to give a few more of the highlights, Per Secretary of Defense Austin, U.S. policy now apparently to deliberately weaken Russian capacity for warfare um, so that Russia is not able to do to other countries what it is doing to Ukraine now. So in line with everything that I've just mentioned that, you know, and we're about to talk, it seems that this is a conflict that is going to the next level of how much Russia will be able to be beyond being a regional power, how much of its great powerness will be able to be articulated and expressed in the next coming years. Um, we have obviously, uh, according to uh, Ukrainian um, officials, over 1 million Ukrainians have gone to Russia over the course of this uh, conflict, and they use the word deportation. Uh, they are alleging that not only are Ukrainians being taken against their will, but that their identity documents are also being taken away. So one of the things to note for basically the future of Ukraine-Russia relations is what about these million Ukrainians who may, may not want to come back to Ukraine after the war is done? The Ukrainian side is claiming that roughly speaking about 183,000 of those people are children. Um, and again, you know, we get to basically what's about to happen next. Uh, the three sort of things that have come up and, you know, conclude that basically the laundry list here is as mentioned just a moment ago, President Biden has requested $33 billion in aid to Ukraine. 16 of those billions are for military aid. The rest is for humanitarian uh, and economic assistance. The United States has already given at this point roughly $3.7 billion in military aid. There's another 3 billion or so from the last uh, economic aid package um, in military aid um, that is still due to Ukraine. So at this point, once we start to put all these numbers together, U.S. military assistance to Ukraine, whether it you know is done by 2022 or goes into 23, is going to be at the level of roughly 20 billion plus for this conflict. The Russian economy is not doing well as is, and certainly in terms of Russia's ability to regenerate forces. They have their annual conscript class, which is in the midst of being prepared. It will still take weeks, if not months, if they go according to the regular schedule, you know, six to nine months to actually train people to be barely trained uh, to join in the conflict. So the forces that Russia has 
is basically the, the forces that Russia is going to be able to use for basically the short to medium term. In the medium to long term, that's basically where Russia is thinking if this war continues for another year, two years, that they'd be able to fight better in the future. And so we can imagine that part of what this aid package is meant to do is to help end this war before Russia is able to regenerate forces in a serious fashion. Um, and then finally, well, I guess, you know, two things to look for in the future. Uh, one is the May 9th uh, holiday in Russia is coming up. May 9th is one of the biggest days in uh, the Russian calendar because it commemorates victory over uh, not German forces in World War II. Um, clear, I would say it wasn't too, um, wasn't too hidden that probably by May 9th, uh, Vladimir Putin wanted to declare total victory over the Nazis in Ukraine and have that just be the moment where he could say, we did a big thing. Here's my uh, present to the Russian people and to world peace. There's no, there's not going to be any sort of meaningful victory that's available on May 9th. So what it could be for that holiday is that in the same way in World War, like during World War II, the Germans invaded June 22nd, 1941, November 7th, 1941, to commemorate the, the revolution, it was the anniversary of the revolution. Um, the Red Army had troops, you know, march in the usual parade uh, across Red Square and head straight to the front. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that on May 9th, President Putin will declare that the special military operation has finished. It was victorious, but the devious, dastardly NATO forces have uh, basically helped the Ukrainian adversary to such an extent that war against NATO and war against you know Nazi forces in Ukraine must be declared. And that's going to be the troops march in Red Square. They go to the front. General mobilization is declared wartime footing um, for the economy is declared. And to support that war effort, we have indications that uh, Vasily Gerasimov, uh, basically the Russian version of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, is taking a personal command in Ukraine near the town of Izum, which is one of the towns that the Russians have been able to take. And I would like to ask you, Ian, Major Brown of the United States Marine Corps, when you hear, uh, let me just ask you, there's a war going on with the United States, uh, doesn't, doesn't seem to be going well, and Mark Milley, the, basically the equivalent of Vasily Gerasimov, uh, is going to the war zone to take personal command. Speak from the heart what this means to you. To me, it, there is absolutely no good implication of that. Um, it would be a... I, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. It would be without historical precedent, certainly at least in in uh, American military history. And um, could argue that this this almost goes back to much older days when you would have you know sort of sovereigns almost marching at the head of their armies as uh, as personal inspiration because nobody beneath them could uh, could could motivate. <laughs> basically or there was uh there was simply no trust in lower commanders so you know when i as we were talking about this before i, I do want to make sure i caveat that um i'm not a, uh, a SME at all on the the russian sort of chain of command and, the, and their organizational structure but um even with those differences like th this is unprecedented um and to and i i'm like either 
uh, there are so many dead generals that we are really like getting to the to the uh, the point where we're taking taking the uh, you know it'd be speaking from the heart here, right? Nobody's left on the bench. We're putting Bill Belichick in as quarterback, right? Because that's who we've got left on <laughs> after after a game of really horrible injuries. This is what's going on, um, and actually. Karazimov and Belichick might be about the same age. I don't know, but no, I like I. It, it's either the, the the chain of command has been so shattered by uh, by successful Ukrainian attacks against all the other senior commanders, or there's absolutely zero trust in the ability of anybody lower than the chief of staff of the arm of the Russian army to carry out an order. Like, and however we cut it, unprecedented and speaks to some pretty what must be very very bad conditions in the chain of command. Also, if I were Grazimov, I would, uh, I'd be wearing some extra body armor because he's going to be probably target number one now for whatever the Ukrainian operation is going after Russian generals. Um, he's just got a big fat target on him. So like that we went from the days of warrior kings, uh, strongest warrior equals the king. Um, but one of the points that I would like to maybe uh, get you to pull on further, and I like the idea that Bill Belichick is now going to be the quarterback because... Um, we, we, need, we need the best person available for the job is when you talked about the chain of command and control. So as ostensibly uh, there are political decisions uh, that are made based on military, you know, professional military advice, uh, political decision gets made. And this is sort of generic for any country. Yeah, there are political objectives. The professional military provides a series of um, option courses of action, things of that nature. Political decision gets made. And then from the top of the military apparatus, down the chain of command, it goes down into increasingly, uh, as it gets lower and lower, it goes from strategic to operational to tactical, so that, that by the time the soldier in the field gets the instruction, they're supposed to do something that is achievable by the, the unit, the platoon, the BTG, whatever it is. So we understand that part. So when one of the, the issues that sort of, uh, that has been a theme throughout this conflict is obviously the state of um, Mariupol, the city that has undergone basically the Aleppo or the Grozny treatment. And at this point, the last stronghold of the Ukrainians is this Azov steel compound, which is one of these gigantic Soviet era things, huge place. The Ukrainians are still resisting from there. Now, what was interesting to me, and, I th and this is the command and control question I wanna ask you, is that President Putin, when speaking to Sergei Shoigu, uh, you know, the defense minister, he said, we're declaring victory in Mariupol. There's no need to take this steel compound, but just blockade it so that not even a fly can get through. When you're hearing tactical level instructions from the president who has to go on TV to provide this, what does that say to you about the state of command and control in the Russian military right now? So it, it says to me that it's it's horrible and it's broken. And I think we've hit this a little bit in some past episodes, and it's certainly been an item of discussion across, uh, you know, articles and analysis that we've seen on all the channels. But in in our in our military system, in our style, like the 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 taking or not of a few square miles of ground is not a decision that, you know, the president's going to weigh in on. Um, or say, you know, the American president or the British prime minister or what have you. There may be some very specific exceptions here. If it's a incredibly high value, few square miles, um, 
you know, but otherwise, um, those like one, those decisions would just, that's not what your, um, your national command authority gets into. Um, two, even if they did, you don't do it on TV. Um, and so what between with that, as well as the, um, sending Grasimov to the front, you know, to encourage the others, right? Um, I think it, it really speaks to the, the dichotomy between the level of trust given to subordinates in, in sort of the authoritarian autocratic military system versus how we have, how we train and organize um, in, a, in other systems under democratic norms. Um, and it's, it, he, it, Putin simply doesn't trust anybody below the person he can stare at in the eyeballs, basically to go and execute any kind of decision, major or minor. And so this, uh, uh, I think this were, this is probably gonna put, this is gonna put some extreme limits on, you know, just how, how effectively still this offensive in, in the Eastern part of the country is gonna go. Because if you only got one person you can trust carry out that, those orders, even if he's an extremely competent person, which looking the last few weeks, it's hard to say there's really a lot of competence, you know, up, down or sideways in the Russian military decision-making framework, but um, now he's not gonna be able to be everywhere, right? And so you're not gonna be able to, to, you know, one sort of create those holes of advantage for yourself or two, exploit them as they as they occur, um, because you just, you you don't have the trust or the, uh, you know, the decision-making tempo outside of one person to be able to do that. Um, so really like that, those kind of two things right there, um, it's just a, a microcosm of a much deeper problem than that. They can't execute any decisions below one or two people, and then I I think also it's uh, the fact that um, Putin had to go on TV and talk about this as well is uh, really an indicator of how badly that fight must have gone in Mariupol, where it, it took the head of state coming on TV to say that this was not a this was not a defeat or a disaster. This was actually a victory, and we're just going to kind of you know take it easy here and unlock off the last few blocks of unnecessary terrain and move elsewhere. Um, that fight must have gone really, really badly. And so, you know, that's, yeah. And it also shows like in, in sort of like your description there, this is both the, what is the drawback uh, in addition to the benefits of autocracy and having like one person be in control of everything. It's to the extent that in a steady state where there's no crisis, Putin, as you said, Trust the person that he can see and ostensibly in a non-crisis situation that person can then convey instructions directly to his subordinate and so on and so forth so where everyone believes that the future is very clear and that basically the political system the environment is very stable autocracy provides for wider latitude of policy choice because you know the putin or the president can decide on anything and ostensibly people then do carry it out, at least at those higher higher levels uh, with some degree of fidelity. But in terms of a crisis, crisis requires the, inst the institutions, the actual like structures to be really solid so that they don't need what the Russians call manual control of every decision of every other person. And so what crisis demonstrates are what are the limits of autocracy. And that, in essence, is what we're observing right now is even in this renewed Donbass offensive, they're trying to do the same things they did in the first phase of the conflict in a smaller area, but they're still not providing big victories. And that, in essence, is going to create even more stress upon the Russian 
political leadership because they're going to have to show something for all of their efforts. And that means there's going to be more pressure placed on not just Gerasimov in the field, but the people that Gerasimov starts to pressure and whom they start to pressure and everything will start <clears throat> and it, ostensibly things will start to get even wilder and woolier than they have been so far. Yeah, and I, I think we're um, probably in a, in a few more weeks as the, you know, the offensive goes forward or does not go forward, depending on their ability to adapt. You know, I think we're going to kind of see more evidence in the the argument that's already been raised again in a lot of these analyses of bad Russian performance in the beginning of the war. Can they adapt and learn? Can they be a learning organization here and do better, you know, relatively speaking in the East? And, and to your point, like, uh, you can't just create a learning organization, you know, in a few hours or in a few days. It, that the institution itself has to be capable of that of that adaptability and that uh, that learning capacity. And uh, you know, I you know, my jealous personal opinion here, right? But um, you can't. They're not going to be able to fix that in a few weeks. You know, it doesn't matter how how well they've been documenting all the things they did wrong in the get go. If there's no institutional capacity for correction doesn't matter how well you write down those lessons because the whole the, the institution itself is structured, as you said, um, it's not meant to learn. It's not meant to decide. It's not meant to adapt. It's just meant to do what one person says they should do. And you can't fix that overnight. And, and learning at its core, both like for an individual as well as for an organization, is having the capacity and the political capacity, I should say, to admit that mistakes were made. And if the conflict is directed by a single individual, anyone at the at a lower level who says, yes, we made this mistake, here's basically what we wanted, here's what happened, here's the lesson, here's what we should do differently. That person has just admitted that he's the person who's at fault. And who wants to take responsibility for this now? Because it's either that person who identified the problem or it came from above. And if, if it came from above, Eventually, it only reaches one person. Yeah, and the, and that one person is the last person who can take that responsibility. Because uh, again, as we, you just, you've discussed in previous episodes, that undermines the legitimacy of their being there, right? Um, which kind of makes me wonder, in, in a number of ways, actually, just why Gerasimov has been sent forward. Um, because if you've had, if your entire military from, you know. The letter, the letters A to Z, and everything in between has been a disaster. Who, who's going to fall on that sword? It's not going to be Putin, right? But there is a senior military leader who has a very personal historical relationship with the changes that were supposed to make the army better, and now he's just been sent to the front line. So I maybe I'm being overly cynical or conspiratorial here, you know, but maybe I'm not. Like maybe could I? And I'll, I'll ask you this question, right? You know, knowing what you know about sort of Putin's personality and the the, uh, um, the 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 power grabbing and the backroom things that go on, and that could he have been sent there to be a sacrificial lamb, not to take control, but to be to sort of you lose you finally lose the person who is in charge of the whole military effort. Does that potentially give give Putin an out at some point? So let's put it this way: we have three people who are highly identified with this conflict at the at the highest levels of political and civilian leadership. We have President Putin, we have the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, and we have uh, Valery Gerasimov, all powerful commander of Russian military forces at this point, uh, who 
allegedly or reportedly is in uh, Ukraine right now. Putin is the boss. Shoigu has been a minister since April 1991. This man has survived every single twist and turn in Russian politics for 30 plus years at this point. I don't know if there's a better political survivor in the modern world, all countries included. And my best guess is that Shoigu told Putin, you know, I'm doing my best, but really the armed forces need to take responsibility for their, uh, their actions in the field. And Gerasimov, I trust him. He's the guy that I want to place in the field right now. And of those people, that's, I think that's the short straw that was drawn by the president and the guy who's been in power since uh, Yeltsin was uh, relatively young and fresh-faced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, maybe I'm being overly cynical here, um, but uh, ho however, however you cut it, you know, as we were talking about here just before, definitely without precedent. Um, and uh, I'm as we look at sort of future, uh, future branching possible paths that this takes, um, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of wondering what happens if, you know, if if you lose the head of your entire military, what what decision making path does that lead Putin to? Um, but I guess kind of in that vein, you know, if looking looking now at some of those other paths, all, all the whole list of things that we just went through that have happened, as well as that May 9th date, which. Uh, it sort of strikes me as as a decision point, but not the one that Putin really wanted, given the performance of his military. Um, what are some of the possible paths now that we could see um, uh, in really in the next few weeks, you know, um, with that date kind of in mind? And, and something else I also, I, I forget if I put it on the list or not, but there's been a lot more rhetoric coming out of both, you know, both Putin and some official state media channels that are disturbingly apocalyptic. Um, you know, Putin recently talked to think about uh, a well, like, like a lightning response to anything that NATO might do to him um, as well. I've been I've been watching some more of these uh, on Twitter, these folks who do like subtitles on the Russian state TV and they, and they, they translate what the people are saying. And it's nuts, um, like in in a in a really disturbing way, kind of nuts, you know, kind of like the Joker nuts. Um, one of the, the more recent ones I thought was either yesterday or the day before where. The, I think it was uh, a lady who's the head of Russian RT, maybe, um, yeah. talking about how, like, we're, we're, we're going to go into World War III and it might be a nuclear war. And if we lose, at least we go to heaven, right? Like, the, that's a disturbing fatalism right there, uh, looking down the future. So, you know, kind of, kind of with all this, as well as the, um, you know, the renewed support that Ukraine has just gotten from the West, both military, non-military, uh, as well as the tightening screws, you know, with back to Germany looking to detach itself from Russian gas. That is just one of many big deals that have, you know, unprecedented things that have sort of shifted the ground the last few weeks. Where what what path do you do you see now? And, and I'll also final thing that I'll, I'll let you talk um, is as you just said, uh, you know, a couple minutes ago, Putin's already talking using the words like war against NATO. Does does May 9th potentially become a line he crosses where he stops trying to hit Ukrainian, you know, rail stations and logistical supply lines that are transporting the stuff. And he starts going outside the country because that's where the stuff is coming in. Yeah. So, and, and again, for, for the viewers out there, uh, the Russian like political talk shows are not, are not for the faint of heart. These are people like screaming at each other that if, if war, 
you know, that NATO is bringing the war to Russia. So therefore NATO has to be dealt with in, you know, the most severe possible way. So for those, for the, the, the viewers who are still with us, uh, for those who remember the McLaughlin show, if you imagine something that's even more insane than like Newsmax, but has the effect of people just screaming at each other to please the host, uh, it's that level of toxic um, interaction. And in this, we can sort of observe that this is the indirect acknowledgement on, on Russian TV that the war is going poorly. Because at the beginning of the conflict, it was a special military operation against Ukraine, and it was supposed to be limited, it was supposed to be fast. It has not been fast, and the limits are, are basically getting looser and looser. And in essence, to describe uh, nuclear conflict or nuclear exchange is for the Russian side, basically the last weapon that they have. And it's the acknowledgement that they're not able to achieve their political objectives through conventional means alone. We have, in terms of deterrence, evidence that it's working on both sides when considering Russia versus NATO, because Russia is not attacking targets that are outside the country of Ukraine, and NATO hasn't intervened, like directly in terms of putting um, actual like boots on the ground. So therefore, it's working. And so for the Russians to then basically start to use nuclear weapons, unless there's some, for whatever reason, massive Ukrainian soldiers that a nuclear weapon would be effective in taking out huge amounts of like soldiers at one time, this is not, it would not have much of a military advantage to use nuclear weapons. It would basically just be indicating we are going to escalate this to a level of international importance. Like we're going to take this to be a something that could change the fate of the human race. What would happen then? Whatever support Russia has in terms of facing down the West, particularly from like India and China, not clear that they would be able to maintain Indian and Chinese support if they went nuclear. Also, the effects on the Russian domestic population, if they've been criticizing the United States for having used nuclear weapons against Japan, basically in the last, for the last 80, however many years, 80 years, yeah, or 80, almost 80 years at this point, if they then put themselves at the level of what they've been criticizing for nearly 80 years, what's the effect on the Russian domestic stability? Unclear. And then finally, this would then become whatever Europe is thinking about in terms of anti-Russia actions, oil embargo, perhaps a natural gas embargo, sanctions, aiding the Ukrainians. This then becomes a full European response against Russia. So unless Russia's real goal is apocalyptic, then it doesn't seem likely because the alternative is to declare general mobilization as we discussed earlier and instead of using nuclear weapons which can go in a lot of weird directions basically you maintaining the casualty intensive russian way of war using mass basically chewing up the russian population to achieve the objectives that seems easier and that doesn't have a lot of these potential downsides so we have to then assess putin who's clearly so afraid of everything that he only meets with people, you know, at the end of really long tables, unless they submit to like his personal version of PCR testing. That guy clearly wants to live and to be successful. And the nuclear weapons suggest that he's willing to give up on success. It seems more likely that they're just willing to basically destroy an entire generation of Russian men 
before they go to the level of using nuclear weapons. So what can we see? And I think this is where we can talk about the, the aid, you know, as you know, requested by President Biden to the Congress, and the Congress seems to be pretty pro-Ukraine on everything these days, is that if it takes six to nine months to train a conscript class to be at least minimally effective in military tasks, the conscript class was uh, called up a couple of weeks ago, so they're not going to be ready until the end of the year, basically at, at the earliest, maybe by, by fall. The Russians are losing quite a lot of people every single week as is. And it appears that Ukraine's strategy is to attrit or to basically just chew up Russian forces by trading space for time to allow the aid that is coming to Ukraine not only to be delivered, but for Ukrainian forces to be trained on them for that to then be introduced. And it suggests that President Biden's view, or at least like the civilian military leadership in the United States, that their view right now is this war is winnable by Ukraine if this becomes a relatively speaking a short war if this is something that is decided in this calendar year there's more stuff that can get to Ukraine relative to what Russia can get from its uh, supply networks to its soldiers in Ukraine right now and that would help Ukraine essentially expel the invaders from their territory um in a way that would not only get it back to what was pre-invasion of February 24th, but perhaps even take back the rest of Donetsk and Lugansk territories. And uh, actually, so I guess one, I'll throw one final thing your way. Looking to, to the question of like actual mobilization and potentially tying that to May 9th, you know, Victory Day. Um, I've, I've been seeing some, some discussion about that as a possibility that um, uh, that parade might, you know, kind of as you described it, like they're just going to keep marching, but, you know, the event would also turn into potentially um, basically mobilization at full war footing, which is something that has not, Putin has not done yet. And I think if you mentioned he has not done that because that has some very strong domestic implications for him. Um, however, as a lot of these other analyses have said, like he's coming to the point where you, you kind of got to decide what you want to do because he's been trying to fight basically a full-scale war with a peacetime level of mobilization and military mm -hmm. readiness so like at some point you got to choose one um so do you do you think he'd be willing to risk the domestic you know the the backlash but it's essentially be an admission of failure on his part if he's got to mobilize for a full war footing do you think that's a a decision point he's ready to make yet or maybe see that as the lesser of two evils of having a, um, you know, a, a complete humiliating defeat. And then questions are raised. Well, we made all this sacrifice. Why didn't you mobilize? Um, what are your thoughts? So certainly the, the war effort is not going well. Like that's one fact. The fact that, you know, the initial question that you raised was uh, the apocalyptic uh, rhetoric that is being employed by uh, people on these on these Russian talk shows, and you know one of the things about these talk shows is that all the all the channels in Russia, like all like the the regular sort of network channels, do not have entertainment programming anymore. It's just all political talk, and so part of that is then in essence preparing the Russian population that bad things are happening, worse things might happen, but for the policy intervention of Putin. 
So part of that is preparing the population that unless Russia wins, it's going to go to nuclear conflict. Nuclear conflict is bad for everyone. So therefore, declaring war, engaging in general mobilization is actually the correct and right thing to do because it's preventing nuclear conflict. That's the logic that takes a couple of weeks for basically the, the Russian population to get used to. And so by the time that it happens, ostensibly in uh, what little, little under two weeks, people will be ready for it. And that's in essence, just the continuation of just, you know, the, the instead of boiling, you know, the frog boiling in the water, like very quickly, instead of putting the frog in the boiling water, the temperature is being raised little by little. Another 10 days of people being told nuclear conflict is imminent unless Russian forces are able to be resupplied in a much more dramatic fashion against these dastardly Ukrainian adversaries. Well, then declaration of war doesn't seem like such a bad or more importantly, such a drastic idea. It seems like the good, humane, safe thing to do. And that in essence is why I'm starting to believe that there's going to be a something dramatic happening on May 9th. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's an interesting analogy about the frog boiling, because whether you do it slow or fast, there's still a dead frog at the end. So, you know, given given as we've talked about their failure as a learning organization and the the absolutely huge disparity in support um, going in both sides, you know, it's a question of not <laughs> the frog doesn't survive. Right. It's just how many other um, casualties are taken before you you reach the same point of failure, which there's some more decision points, I guess, down the road um, once the failure can't be uh, can't be denied anymore by the highest levels of Russian leadership. But uh, we'll leave. I guess we'll, we can leave that as a question for the another day. Well, you know, we're <laughs> it was really busy for a couple of weeks, but, you know, even with uh, even with everything going on, we're we're, we're going to be returning to this issue a number of times before May 9th and after May 9th, because um, the the violence will get worse. And we're, we're seeing some pretty big decisions about the European and international security architecture uh, for the next generation and beyond being decided uh, on the fields of Ukraine right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as we've, we've spoken about a lot, like um, I think you mentioned, like this is the we're, we're, we're in the post whatever comes after the post Cold War phase of history now. And we're, we're wandering off into the parts of the map where it says here be monsters, which is. <laughs> It's it can have a thrill, but it's really uh, it's kind of unsettling at the same time because um, we are we are walking in, in a place we haven't walked in generations. The post-Soviet era is dead. Long live the post-Soviet era. May it may it be happier than that started when it gets to uh, gets to the end. All right, uh, you've all. I'm looking at the clock. I know we both got to yeah. punch out. So I'm glad we finally got back on to do this um, to our audience. We'll try and uh, in the sort of get back to our previous tempo here um, and at a minimum we'll try not to have a couple weeks in between this episode yep. and the next one but um, I'd also note that uh, on the broadcast side here we are going to have a number of very exciting episodes coming up uh, by the time I get this one posted we'll have already done the one we're doing this afternoon but I hope the audience will go listen to it because we have a guest speaker from uh, the University of Norway in Bergen and she's going to be talking about kind of looking to that post-war phase uh, you know, which is going to come at some point and just sort of a question of time. Um, but how do how do hold accountable those who have uh, violated international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflicts 
you know, we're seeing those violations on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis, depending on uh, on how many sorties, you know, the Russian Air Force and the missile forces decide to generate. But um, at some point, the questions are going to come of, you know, having some justice for those who lost their lives in those violations. But as our guest is going to know, framework for doing that is uh, is not very strong. And and so there there could be some challenges in holding holding those who made those decisions to violate those norms accountable. Um, following week, we're also going to have uh, very excited to have uh, a couple of um, Marine officers come and talk to us about the information space, which, as we've seen in this conflict, has been a uh, a dominant domain. And so uh, our guests, we're going to have the commanding officers of both second and third MIG talk about what the Marine Corps is doing in the information domain and how their respective MEF information groups have been approaching information in their respective AOs because there are some differences. Um, also note on Thursday, we're going to have the next Middle East Studies lecture, and that's actually going to be talking about foreign fighters in Ukraine. So that should be, you know, we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff on the media about uh, whether they're Syrians or Chechens or, or even on the, um, you know, on the Ukrainian side, their international legion of, of volunteers from Western countries, taking a look at what that experience is like for both of those and sort of how they're employed. And then finally on Friday, we'll be joined by Dr. Marcus Gorenson of Swedish Defense University. And uh, he's going to be looking at Russian military thinking, um, which has definitely been a question about what is going on in the Russian military mind over the last two months. So that's his field of expertise, and he's going to kind of walk us through it. Uh, with a, with, I think he's going to have a special focus on Gerasimov as well. So we'll see if Gerasimov is still on the field by the time that broadcast happens. But all right, anyway, you've all again, thank you very much. And uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the sunny south there. And, uh, and we'll see you here again soon. All right. Happy trail. See you soon, Ian. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.